one time specifically I had said, well, why don't you let me practice family medicine in one of your out, outline clinics? And so I said, I'm interested in prescribing medication-assisted treatment, um, Suboxone. And uh, they talked to the doctors that were in this remote clinic, and the quote that came back, which still shocks me to this day, was, well, we really don't want to attract that kind of patient to our practice. That's <laughs> absolutely blew me away and the second comment that came out was well, well we have an image to protect and, and that's when I realized this stigma is huge absolutely just incredibly huge welcome to health professionals in recovery a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder harm reduction and recovery from addiction our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosandrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Welcome uh, to Healthcare Professionals in Recovery. Um, on the line today, we have uh, Luther Falea and Bill Kinkle and myself, Sean Fogler. Um, little introduction here. Dr. Luther is a board-certified family physician who's also practiced emergency medicine and his long-term recovery from a substance use disorder. He describes his journey as a voyage unlike any other, filled with loss, discovery, and survival ultimately leading to resilience and a renewed passion for his fellow human beings, including his patients. He balances the science and art of medicine, but truly loves the art. He has recently launched a new practice that aims to deliver primary care for persons in recovery. It's a practice where recovery is celebrated, there's no stigma, and patients are supported and lifted up. From abstinence to harm reduction, every individual and every path is supported. Each individual's health and wellness is a priority, I read many testimonials online, and there, there are many articles, actually, which are amazing. Uh, Dr. Filet has written extensively on his recovery journey and the challenges healthcare professionals face when they struggle with mental health challenges, substance use disorders, and legal challenges. He has volunteered with the Salvation Army and works with other professionals who struggle. Uh, his story is powerful and important, and, uh, and I'm really excited to have him on today. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wow. I um, thank you for that intro. I'd forgotten half the things that you uh, said on there. But thank you. No, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm glad to see the two of you uh, have the great support that you do as well. Because uh, as you know, and, and, and I certainly have learned, um, mental illness and addiction are two things you don't want to have when you're in our professions. It's very, very uh, difficult to get the help you need because the stigma's out there. And I've certainly experienced that um, over time. You know, I can I can start in many different places on this, but I don't I, I'm not much to go back into childhood other than to say that um, I think if there had been psychiatrists diagnosing me as a child, I probably would have had a mix of, of generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Um, and it stems from many different things, among them being raised in a very religious household. Uh, my father was a minister, and I, I learned a concept of this this being that sat on a throne with a lightning bolt. And uh, anytime I strayed out of this narrow path, uh, I feared being struck dead 
and, and when you're a child and you look to your parents as the authority figures, I mean, that becomes very real. As silly as it sounds now as an adult, you know, when you're six, eight, ten years old, this is something that becomes very real and uh, instilled a lot of anxiety. And in that, uh, on top of just being a sensitive kid, which uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I was definitely a sensitive child. And, and uh, so I carried that with me, not just through childhood, but adolescence, adulthood, and, and really into even uh, years beyond that as well. Uh, it was just one of those things that, that just stayed with me um, and, and truly I would say became the, the one of the main reasons that I actually developed an addiction. Uh, yeah, so that's that's really the big uh, beginning of the story. And and uh, you know, I, I fast forward generally to, to medical school now because I remember the first day I walked into the, to, to med school, uh, I was just extremely anxious. And I, I to this day remember walking up those stairs, almost throwing up. And uh, going, there's no way I want to do this. It's just not something I'm interested in. Um, actually, uh, people say, why did you become a doctor? And I say, well, because my mother told me I was going to be a doctor. Um, you know, how many times do you hear those stories from, from different people? But so, I, you know, it was really an anxiety-filled uh, first two years of medical school. Um, and then the day came, one day I was I was studying in, in one of the study rooms. And... Uh, it was amazing. I suddenly had this overwhelming feeling of dread and uh, heart palpitations and sweating and dizziness and chest pain. And yeah, I didn't know what was happening. You know, when you're a second year med student, you know, I started thinking about, well, am I having a heart attack? Am I having a stroke? And uh, <clears throat> long story short, I had a fairly extensive workup and only to be told by the doctor that you're having a panic attack and uh, or had a panic attack and uh you know at that stage in med school i really didn't want to accept the fact that this was was a panic attack but what he did and you know you hear about uh uh, alcoholics who take their first drink and it's kind of like I I died and went to heaven I'll never forget he said but we have a new prescription on the market and it's called Xanax and he said we'll try this and see if we can help and I'll never forget taking that first pill and uh, it didn't just abort the panic attacks but for the first time in my life I felt normal this is what it's like to not be anxious and uh, uh, thus started a 27-year love affair with benzos in whatever form I could get them. It didn't matter. So it, uh, I don't know that I would look back at that time and say that I had, you know, what we would call substance use disorder, but it certainly was something that made me realize that I could have a quick fix to my problems by taking a pill. You know, rather than dealing with the underlying issues of, you know, childhood trauma, uh, it was easy. I could just fix, you know, and, and you guys probably know what it's like too, just to be able to fix something by taking a, a pill. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. I know like for me, that was a little different experience, but, but the substance definitely medicated my emotions and kept me numb. And so I didn't have to look at anything. Um, at, at, at that time, when you first started taking benzos, were you um, were you doing any? 
like when I look back at my childhood, I even though I wasn't using substances, I recognize now that some of my thinking and my behaviors were addictive in nature. Mm-hmm. And did did you find any of that with with yourself? Like if you look back, or was it just you took that substance and you got the relief, and that was it, and it was and game know, on? If you talk about the addictive behaviors, I think they started later. Uh, I, I uh, you know, certainly later on, and I'll get to that. There were other behaviors that became. Addictive. Well, one of the earlier ones was uh, I started running marathons. Uh, when I started running and ultimately running marathons, uh, oh, probably in my 30s, and I loved it at first, but then it became an obsession, an addiction, um, where I was having to run, you know, my 70, 80 miles a week. And if I didn't, if I missed a day, I became irritable. And and truly, as I look back, I was probably withdrawing that particular day because I hadn't ran. And it got to the point I was hating running. I was hating doing marathons, but I had to do it, even though at this by that time it was really causing me harm, not anything good and nothing positive was coming from it because I was either gone running or irritable because I wasn't running. So I think a lot of that behavior started more in my 30s. Um, but it was interesting, you know, I, I did go see a psychiatrist in med school <laughs> and he, uh, he talked, he goes, yeah, whatever he goes, he goes, oh, maybe the Xanax will work for you. And he gave me a hundred pills with like three refills <laughs> of the one milligram Xanax. I don't know if you, you know, 0.5 is about the standard. And so it was like for a long time, you know, the psychiatrist just kept, well, here, you know, just take this Xanax and you'll do fine. And, you know. Were you guys doing therapy as well? Were you talking well, through things or was it just pharmacotherapy? Yeah, it was pretty much pharmacotherapy, you know, and, and I thought, okay, well, fine, this is working. Why should I change anything? Um, meanwhile, stuffing all the all the, the different things down that caused it. But, you know, and then fast forwarding all oh, probably to the early 2000s, like a lot of people, I had a uh, some type of injury and I'll never forget once again my first prescription of Vicodin. And it was this, wow, this is euphoria. This is energizing. And so now I had the, the best of both worlds. I was relaxed and energetic. And how much better could it get? It was it was just a, a phenomenal feeling. And it was one of those feelings, you know, didn't want to go away. And wanted it to just hang on and and uh, yeah, and, and I would say then is really when the addict brain triggered in because then it started to become, I need this, I need this, I want this, and I will go to any measure to get it. And how, how old were you at this point? Uh, like, were in you my, in residency or? No, this was, this was well beyond that. I was, I was okay. probably in my early 40s when I got introduced quite innocently by a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and back in those days, there really wasn't this prescription drug monitoring program. So, and, and doctors freely gave doctors prescriptions. All I had to do is say I can't sleep, and a prescription came for Valium or Ativan or Xanax. And then I said, oh, God, my back is bothering me. And, you know, 30, 40, 60 Vicodin came out. So it was very easy to obtain from colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the prescription drug monitoring program became more in Minnesota became something that was required to do, I realized I had to go another route. And that's when I started diverting. Um, 
And this was probably about 2010 when I really got heavy into the diversion. Prior to that, I would do a little diverting here and there, and then then I was getting my full prescriptions um, by diverting narcotics. I and, and here's a here's an interesting aside from this. In about 2010, when this all, whole thing started, um, I was invited by a rising uh, country music singer to be his keyboardist. You know, and I, I, I had played in, you know, I was kind of a musician. That's what I really wanted to do. And, and I'd played in different classic rock bands and and uh, never anything. It was primarily playing gigs and bars and at wedding receptions. And then this guy, he was up and coming. He'd been in Asheville and and I got to meet him through the, the lead guitarist in the band. And, and he said, you want to join? I said, I need a keyboardist. So I went and auditioned. He said, yeah, you're just what we're looking for. And so... Then I became part of this band, and, and it, was, it was country music. And um, the drug and alcohol culture in, in country music is just incredible. And so, you know, here I was, active substance use disorder, fulfilling my dream uh, of being a uh, musician in an up-and-coming band. And uh, anyway, it also became a great place to divert because one of the uh, – uh, one of the friends I had was a chronic pain patient, and, and he was one of these, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call him an illegitimate chronic pain patient, but he was somebody that was obviously using it for more than just his chronic pain. And so, you know, he would supply me with some morphine, and, and uh, I would write prescriptions, and, and uh, anyway, it, it became a mess. Um, were you still pra- practicing oh, yeah, at I was the time? Working, I was okay, working you were. ER medicine full-time, yeah. And uh, the, <laughs> looking back on it, part of me is by the grace of God, I didn't hurt someone. I didn't mm-hmm. injure a patient or, or injure myself. Um, did, did you feel like at this time that like you were losing control or did you, did you have no real awareness or, or insight? You were just kind of on autopilot. Cause, cause when I look back on my, like the stuff that I went through, I, I had no insight. Like I was numbed out and disconnected and I was just running on autopilot everything was almost reflexive and you know now looking back it it you know seems insane um my behavior and the things i was doing but did you have any like clarity at the time or was it just well feeding, it, feeding your habits and you know in the in the moment kind of thing i i think a lot of it was really that which happens a lot is that i'm taking all these these pills and drinking alcohol on top of it but also the the rationalization in my brain that that uh I can control this. Um, one of the the hypocritical things I did, and and I can look back on it and laugh right now, but back then it wasn't. Is you know we would see these quote unquote drug seekers in the ER, and I was just as as uh, mean as any of my colleagues, you know, and be like, oh, you drug seeker, you know, get out of here. And and I would think to myself, but see, they have this problem; they can't control theirs, but but I can control my addiction, and it it. Uh, uh, yeah, so so part of it was really trying to rationalize the behavior, but then as it got worse and worse, I realized I wasn't even feeling anything from the meds anymore. It was really a matter of taking them to not withdraw, and um, and then you know it's inter- <laughs> it's interesting uh, when I was writing the prescriptions. What I should have done, looking back, is I should have just you know gotten some Dr. Luther MD prescription pads from wherever you get them from online. But no, I wrote them on 
the corporations I was working for, I, I wrote them on their heading. You know, their heading was on the prescription. And uh, one day an astute pharmacist uh, said, I wonder if somebody's not um, forging your name because we have something for, we have a prescription for 120 30 milligram oxycodone and uh, 120 uh, clonazepam. And so he faxed those prescriptions to my boss and my boss said, uh, I think somebody's forging your prescriptions. And I said, yeah, I think so too. Uh, <laughs> but they did a little bit more research into it and, and started to become very, very suspicious. And, you know, at that time, there were a lot of other things in my life. I was, I was, I had a rocky relationship um, with my wife and, and through many different uh, I don't know, many different circumstances, I started to become very suicidal. And this probably started six months to a year um, prior to this time. And again, it was just a, a combination of many different events that uh, ultimately uh, made me decide, however irrationally, that this was it of 90 to 10 in my life. And even rather than facing the inevitable at work, um, I drove up to one of my favorite areas in northern Minnesota, fully intending to take my life. I mean, as a physician, I know how to do it. My goal was I was going to drink alcohol, take a bunch of benzos, get relaxed, and then pop my whole uh, bottle of opioids and be done. Uh, but I didn't do the suicide right because I had forgotten that if you take a bunch of benzos and drink alcohol, you pass out. And I passed out before I actually took the opioids. And through a series of different circumstances, uh, I had a good friend, fellow musician of about 40 years, that I had called before this to say goodbye, the only person I called. And uh, he had known I was going to be up there. Um, and apparently, I told him where I was and that I called to say goodbye, but I have no recollection of doing that. Um, anyway, uh, Next thing I recall, he was banging on the, the cabin door where I was staying and uh, made a bunch of coffee and sat up with me all night. And I bawled my eyes out and uh, realized that, you know, I, I need help. Um, I don't know. People would say, was that rock bottom? I guess I'm not uh, necessarily someone who believes you have to hit a rock bottom. But it was a point that it was either die or get help. And uh, about uh, three or four days later, I was in treatment. What year was that? 2012. Um, okay. I, I went into treatment. Well, actually, the first day I didn't use was 10, 11, 12. So it's an easy date to remember. Um, yeah, and it's it started a, a, a new journey. Uh, and I think probably some of the more difficult things, as, as difficult as all this was, some of the more difficult things were ahead of me, uh, both with treatment and then the subsequent uh, time I've been in recovery. Um, yeah, I mean, treatment, I, I remember going in and, and uh, um, got put on Suboxone after the uh, obligatory uh, few hours that I needed to be off of opioids. And then, um, yeah, I feel better. I felt better. I actually felt quite good. But the mistake that was made um, was in the benzo withdrawal. I uh, was put on Librium, and the plan was to wean me off in 10 days, which 
I mean, I was using 18 to 20 milligrams of clonazepam daily. And uh, so, um, but, but the place How did that go? How did that probably go? didn't go too smoothly. <laughs> That's a very no, high and, you know, dose. The, and the place I was at, I mean, they were abstinence-based at the time. And it was, we got to get you off of these drugs and get you on, you know, whatever medications that, that uh, were non-addictive. And uh, so... A day after the Librium was tapered down, I ended up in the hospital with uh, uh, basically DTs, benzoin-induced DTs. Uh, I remember very little of it other than the fact that my wife at the time actually took some pretty meticulous notes in a, uh, a notebook just to see what I had gone through. And apparently I was yelling and screaming and combative. And, and even at this this uh, very renowned hospital, um, even even after being evaluated psychiat- by psychiatrists, they didn't see that what I needed was to be put back on benzos and tapered very slowly. And what I got when I became combative was held all like everybody gets when they're combative. And uh, I remember waking up after getting the held all, and and literally it was like my whole body was tied to the bed. And then the doctors were coming in and asking me questions and. What I found out is I had been screaming that I was having chest pain during the combative uh, part of this, and uh, uh, yeah. So, so what did they do? They did a stress test on me the next day, um, and then sent me back. <laughs> and 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 I I look back at that and I go, wow, you get. I mean, truly missing the entire that this was truly uh, very acute benzo withdrawal that I was still going through. So, so did I they that. slow the did they slow the taper? No, they didn't. Over, they didn't. They didn't. No, I got I got no benzos, and so I went back oh. to the I went back to the uh, treatment center. And they started me back on Librium, and I was on Librium for possibly a week, tapered me off, and then I ended up back in the hospital again. The difference is before I left for the hospital, they gave me a Librium, so by the time I got to the hospital, I was fine. Went back again, back to the treatment center, and uh, no more uh, Librium. And and I, uh, yeah, the first six weeks, I have a very, very vague recollection, and it was truly because I was I was in withdrawal, um, just in this incredible fog, almost what people call a, a derealization or depersonalization, where I felt like I was watching myself go through the actions. Like I was actually, truly what people say, what was it like? I say it was like watching myself in a movie. I could see myself interacting, but I really was completely detached from that. And that lasted for long after my treatment was over. I mean, I was in treatment for 102 days. And and uh, at, at what point in treatment did you feel lucid? or they connected or did you not at all was no was... i did i mean it, it got better the first six weeks i would say it was was not uh good at all then the, the next eight weeks it got better but i truly have to go back and think very very hard about my treatment uh, most of the things i remember are things that that people that were there with me and friends to this day told me that happened and of course you know then it builds up in your mind that oh i remember this happening when <laughs> I really don't remember it happening. So, so when I left, I was okay. I certainly was stable, but the uh, post-acute withdrawal syndrome probably stayed with me for two years, if maybe not even closer to three years. I got out in January of 2013, and 
you know, was on, I think, four, four different psych meds. Um, and yeah, it took, it took a long time to feel, you know, whatever normal is, but to feel my normal, you know, and it was really interesting as I got out and it, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm at least functional enough to practice. And so I'd been in the same healthcare corporation for 22 years. And, uh, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to be welcomed back. I've, I've really, you know, confronted some of my demons, some of the anxieties that I had, some of the childhood trauma. Um, a very, very good counselor. And, uh, Luther, just yeah. um, one comment. Had you reported to the P- to the physician's health program at this uh, point? Yeah, you know what? It was. Yes, it was required at treatment to okay to the PHP, or else they wouldn't successfully graduate me from the program. Thank you for mentioning that. Okay. Um, I probably would have gotten to that at one point in time, right? And so what happened is that when I reported myself, one of the things you know. Your learning and treatment is is truth and honesty. And so I told them I diverted, which then resulted in an automatic reporting to the medical board. And I'd been uh, reported by my boss in the ER, but this was, uh, whether he reported me or not, I would have been reported to the board. Mm -hmm. Um, And that started a cascade of hell. Um, um, In Minnesota, and I think like in most states, the, the... Board, the, the PHP is is a, a state-run organization. Um, so it, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it serves its purpose of doing drug screens, um, but where they lack truly is in helping uh, health professionals reintegrate back into practice. And I realize it's not their job, but you know, they did their purpose. I think th- the benefit was that they kept me sober for, you know, three years that I was monitored, not that I haven't stayed sober since I have, but, um, but you know, it was really one of those things where I felt like they didn't say, do you want to be part of the, you know, physician monitoring program or do you want to, uh, uh just not do it? Cause I wasn't given the option. It well, it's not a- really a choice, right? No. I, I mean, they say it's voluntary, but if you want to practice and maintain right. your license, um, and that's, we have these discussions all the time, obviously right. about health professional programs. And it's interesting how you said they kept me sober for three years, mm-hmm. but <laughs> was it them? I mean, was it the monitoring? Was it the program? Um, you know, because you, you're doing the work, you know, you, you're going to group, you know, you're going to meetings, you're looking inside You're. um, I, I know physician health programs, Definitely, there's a lot of positive attributes to them, right. but as right. we've had discussions, and Bill knows this too, right. Um, right. there is a lot of um, a lot of strategies they they use that are not evidence based that um, can push people that are struggling into the shadows. And like mm-hmm. you said, they don't offer peer support. Right. Um, they right. are strictly a monitoring agency and they're gathering data. And that's the missing piece, I think. Um, and, and it's really not directed towards, I mean, it's directed towards patient safety, you know, and making sure that you're safe to practice. It's about public safety. It's not really about, um, you know, my personal health. I believe that's, that's, least my experience my experience has been there's a lot of things that probably i should be working on that are on hold for a couple years until i finish with all the requirements for them because i just don't have time to address the 
the specific things for me that I've pinpointed as contributing or making them more vulnerable to substance use, um, those things are not dealt with by all the requirements, uh, you know, for the monitoring program. So they're, I'm aware of them and I keep them in check, but in terms of really digging deeper, mm-hmm. um, I think they're further down the line. Yeah. And if, and if we're protecting the public, we should be actively testing and engaging clinicians that are in practice. Right. I mean, the, right. <laughs> the clinicians that are in practice should be going to group, you know, should be randomly tested, should be, if we're going to say it's a public safety thing. Right. Um, or, or at not least that, have some type of trauma-informed, I yes. mean, realize that the incredible stress that we're under, uh, you know, caring for and taking on other people's pain uh, repeatedly day after day. I mean, I found that there just wasn't an outlet for talking openly and honestly for Luther, I mean, you talked about it in the beginning. I was the same sensitive kid. Um, I always just found it really easy to empathize with people and to kind of share in their their pain. It just came very natural for me, uh, which is what I found very typical of people who use substances. And so it's not a big surprise that we gravitate towards a caregiver role and whatever whatever that is, you know, physician, right. nurse, paramedic. Right. and But I, I don't find that there's a a place really for us to decompress. I mean, there is when there's major incidents, but for the regular day-to-day that just compounds over time, you know, how do we start getting to a place where we openly talk about uh, the vicarious trauma that we take in? Right. Um, You know, one of the things you asked me is that did they keep me sober? And the first thought that came back to my mind was no fear kept me sober. Um, Because having a positive screen or um, missing a screen meant being reported to the board. Um, and, you know, I, I'd already had to go in front of the board, but but I thought it, it's the fear, the fear of making this thing worse that kept me sober in the beginning. And uh, I didn't feel that there was help for my issues. And again, maybe, you know, that's not their job, but I, I felt like I was being i'm trying to think of what the word is but it wasn't helping as much as it was like i said keeping keeping me fearful of of uh of relapsing do you think that's do you think that's necessary or a good strategy i i think one of the things that as i look back on it in all fairness is that had I not, given how I was f- uh, physically feeling miserable, had I not had that strict monitoring in the beginning, I think my risk of relapse would have been higher. However, as I progressed through the three years, I found that the uh, monitoring became a nuisance rather than a necessity because I had developed such a strong recovery support system, um, which, which I suppose in and of itself is a good thing. I guess my the biggest thing is that I didn't feel like I could go to them for help. Um, I had to give them the illusion that everything was okay. Um, which is yeah. which is at the essence of the problem, right? Right. right. We, yeah. We live it. We live in the shadows. We're afraid to ask for help. Then you get into a program that's supposed to be supportive and helping. And you're afraid to be honest. Absolutely. And part of the solution is right. is being honest and right. open and and, right. and truthful and without the without the the fear the fear because fear drives so much of I mean it drove a ton of my behavior I mean um, and it sounds like it did for you too 
So, um, yeah, it's an interesting conundrum. Absolutely. Um, and it, you know, going back to, to my story, I remember when I got out and it was literally waiting for the phone to ring. I mean, after 22 years in the same company, you know, I had developed a lot of what I thought were friendships, um, among colleagues. And, uh, I think one of the things that even to this day is is uh, hurtful is the fact not one colleague reached out. And it wasn't that they didn't know I was in treatment. Believe me, the word gets around the medical community that uh, that's your treatment. And um, no one reached out. And as I look back on that, that was one of the flaws in the system. And, and no, I'm not blaming them. It's It's that I don't think they knew what to say. I don't think they knew what to do with this new person who's coming out with a, a, a new excitement for life, new excitement for patient care. And uh, yeah, there was a real difficult thing to adjust to. And even to this day, I am not in contact with any of those uh, former colleagues. You and I have spoke about this and I, I've had the same experience. You know, it's <clears throat> almost had to grieve that loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, ha- I have a few colleagues that have been supportive and, um, but but I but I changed, you know, and yes. and I realized that a lot of those relationships were not what they really were, um, right. and some of them I didn't want. <laughs> and they, oh, absolutely. They, and they, they, you know, you have this whole this clarity about the world and your relationships, and and stuff changes. But there is that isolation, and I, I think like a lot of my colleagues think it's safer to keep me. Um, at a dif- at a distance, and I, I love this line. I was reading some of the articles you had written, and you and you said there are two things you don't want to have as a doctor: addiction or mental illness. You become ostracized. People don't line up saying, "I hear you're sick. I want to help." As my girlfriend says, there are no casseroles. Right. You know, <laughs> and and you don't get that. You get radio silence. And right. addiction is a disease of isolation. And like for me and Bill and I have talked about this endlessly. Like. Being connected with the world and people is the solution. And right. so when you're stonewalled and it's quiet, it's it is it's not a good feeling. Right. <laughs> a- ab- absolutely not. Um, but but it was really it was really a lonely time. You know, one of the things I look back and I'd like to get your comments on this as well is I think part of the reason is that when I did connect uh, with them, which was my my doing, um, however small it was, I found that they seemed to be taken aback by this new transparent person who was willing to be vulnerable and really, again, coming to them with a new passion for living. I mean, I truly, it, it really did make a difference in me finally dealing with, you know, being able to release a lot of the things that, that led to my addiction. I don't know if you experienced that, but it was like they're going, whoa, who is this guy? Well, it's the honesty, the brutal right. honesty and, and right. hearing the truth, because at least for me, like being awake and clear, mm-hmm. um, I see the truth and I want to speak the truth. And right. I think a lot of the world does not want to hear the truth. Right. Right. And 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 maybe that's uncomfortable because I like that's been part of my healing is just being open and honest about everything. Yeah. And, uh, and when you're not that, like before I wasn't that way at all, I wore the mask, I hid, I was quiet. 
you know, right. and I just played the part and it was a horrible way to live. But I think a lot of people run on autopilot yeah. and they want to keep the mask up and, the, yeah. you know, um, and it's, it's not safe, healthy. It's a safer way, I think, in, in our professions to just put a mask on and pretend like everything's OK mm-hmm. and then go home and be miserable. Not everyone, of course, but but I think there's, you know, why are we hearing about so much burnout in our profession? Why are we hearing of increasing number of, and this is physicians, and I'm sure it's it's in other areas of healthcare, but, you know, what, four to 500 suicides a year? You know, why is this happening? What is going on to to create this? What is it that, that uh, you know, a, a physician is so miserable about that they would actually you know, take their own life. I mean, I've been down that dark spot. I have. Um, but but I'm, I really didn't realize how prevalent that was until I started doing some research on it and and, and asking why. I, I can't say that I have the answers, except, except the more, you know, every day I read an article on physician burnout, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, quote unquote the system. And yes, the system is to blame, but I wonder how much of it too is just internal, an internal battle mm-hmm. with who we are projecting ourselves to be in our careers and who we really are. And really that yearning, that screaming for that real person to come out um you know take the white coat off and even even to the point of communicating with patients where you say you know what i'm a human being first then i'm a doctor you know um, or another healthcare professional because we project ourselves as more than human and 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 we're not we're human and that's what i i love about when you talk about your practice like connecting with the patients sharing your story being open and honest like I think historically the the mindset was don't show your humanity, you right. know, just just right. you know dress it up and because it's not it's not healthy the patients need to see somebody strong who's going to make decisions for them and dictate right. care and I don't think that's what people want today. No. I think they want to hear the truth. I think the patients want the honest truth. They want to know you're human. I th- I think re- you know relating and connecting. Um, you know, obviously you have to have boundaries and you have to be mm-hmm. careful. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I just I think that old mindset is keeping us sick, and I don't think it's good for patients or society. Patients want to. Uh, they don't want to hear you need to. Those words by a doctor. They want to hear. Here are your options. Let's let's look at them together. Um, I see myself in my practice today as an advocate. I'm advocating for you, but you're the one that has to heal yourself. Yeah. I can maybe have if, if you have high blood pressure. Yeah, you know, you, you can look at some of the ways that you can control it. But yet maybe you need to be on an antihypertensive. But don't look at that as your fix all, you know, much mm-hmm. like, you know, any other medication. You know, you can, you can give a diabetic insulin, but if they're going to continue to to eat an unhealthy diet, um, mm-hmm. You know, that's as big a part of it as, as being on insulin or another diabetic medication. Yeah. Um, so back yeah. back to your story, you so you came out of treatment and you were expecting to go back to work. And then this whole cascade of events <laughs> yeah. occurred. So in January 2013, <laughs> I got the letter from the, the board saying that we're starting an investigation and I and, uh, went in and, you know, Sometimes you wonder if the openness and honesty is is always good in those situations, but I was. And then um, 
uh, nine months later in October of, I have to think, no, same, yeah, same year, October of 2013, I got called before the board. And the best I can describe that is going before a congressional subcommittee. It was, it was a U-shaped table with me at one end with a microphone and I don't know, 15, uh, people that were part of the board and, uh, Probably looking back, I should have had an attorney, but I thought, you know, a, a lot of the uh, ego was still there. And I thought, I can just do this on my own. Um, you know, and it wasn't easy. I didn't expect it would be easy. And what they did at that, the, the decision was that they suspended my license and they sent me to a place in Colorado where I needed to have an extensive evaluation, both, uh, you know, to, to see am I, am I, fit quote unquote to practice medicine um and i went and i don't really know that they gathered any information that wasn't already known i did take a simulated board exam and i did fine um i had to be grilled by some some family medicine docs about you know how would you do this how would you do this and one of the things <laughs> that was funny is he goes well what's the what's the regular immunization schedule for somebody who's ex, you know ex old uh, year old female that comes in what should the screening test be and i said well i have this thing online that i look before a patient you know and i said it's either from the you know aafp or i can go on up to date i said all these resources online and i said i don't commit those things to memory anymore and he was kind of taken aback you know almost like i should just know off the top of my head what all, what screening tests this person needs done rather than, oh, look, you're 50 years old, you need to have this. So, um, and I think probably part of it was my way of just rebelling against this as well. But they sent a report back to the board and uh, three months later in uh, March or April of 2014, my um, suspension was stayed and uh, really a stay of suspension, in my opinion, isn't much different than a suspension. But that was done for three years until I could uh, demonstrate what they called three years of continuous uninterrupted sobriety, which, and they retroactive, made it retroactive back to when I did treatment. So, and the thing, and I know they're government organizations, but the thing that is probably the most irritating to me is that not only did they say, you know, this is what happened. This is this is what our decision was. It was they took every part of my mental health and my evaluation at uh, this organization, and they put that all in the report for the public to read. And that, to me, does not need to be done. I think you can make a summary uh, and uh, whatever you need to, to report to the public. But the, it was very, very over-reported. And some of the things, you know, if anyone else had that done, it would be a HIPAA violation, you know, but but you lose your rights in those situations. And that was probably the biggest thing that that was the thing that made me the most angry. Mm -hmm. Is that why is this all out here for the public to read? Why do they have to know about my mental health? Why do they have to know about the fact that I had this evaluation done and that, uh, you know, there were concerns about my fitness to practice medicine? They, the public doesn't need to know that. Mm -hmm. And that sends the, the shame off the charts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, and you know, which can send you back down that dark road, right. you know, to, right. to, to, to addiction. Cause that's, I've had that experience too, 
obviously, you know, with the, with the public shaming and it's, um, it's about the worst possible thing, you know, worst experience ever. Did, did you find it, were you just angry or did it, did it just tear at you on the inside? I mean, did it, did, did you feel the shame or was it just, this shouldn't happen? And no, I was, there was, there was absolutely shame. I mean, I walked out of that first meeting and I called my best friend, um, in recovery. And I said, this is it. I'm done. I want to go down, you know, I want to go downtown to get some pills and, and uh, I'm going to stop at a liquor store on my way home. Forget this. This is, this is not re- the recovery I expected. This is not people trying to help me get back, you know, into a practice. This is people that are doing everything they can to keep me out of practice. And again, to their credit, their responsibility is to the public. Mm-hmm. It's to keep the public safe, not keep me safe. But, but, uh, but does that help the public? Does that improve safety? Oh, I, I think right? not, because we're not being helped. We're being, you know, we're, we're coming up against issues that are making us fear, uh, feel more guilt and more shame. And again, I, I, I really wish that this didn't have to be a public, um, a public shaming that, that the boards put on doctors because it's it's made public. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, then of course, one of my, uh, one of the doctors that ran our health profession program said, well, you know, you really should make this known to the American Board of Family Medicine because it's better that they learn from me rather than that they learn from whoever else they would find it. And I, I explained, I wrote them a very nice letter and I said, here's the situation, dot, dot, dot. And, and uh, I got this very terse letter back that we're revoking your board certification. And even after my suspension was stayed, uh, they kept it revoked. And I had a lot of harsh words back to them and we went back and forth. And I said, you know, you're not helping physicians that are struggling with these issues because you just look at it and say, you know, when you look at their little bylaws, you say, well, this is immoral behavior. This is behavior not becoming of a physician. And, you know, we're not going to, to, uh, to, let you be board certified, even though your suspension is stayed and even though you're working on your issues. And I said, well, why don't you have a stay of certification? You know, and I said, you know, and then they go, well, we support every doctor going into treatment. And I said, but you're not supporting them. I said, you're, yeah. you're creating more shame and guilt. There is a better way to do this, but it's, it was like talking to a brick wall. Um, well, it's not support. It's it's either get in line and toe the party line and look the part and act the part, or else or else you're out. You know, we we don't want to hear that you struggle with depression or anxiety or substance use disorder. You know, we don't want to hear about your challenges, your trauma. It's 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 not important. And right. they say they help, but but the act action still has everything right. And and the right. way they act and behave. Um, that's not that's not it at all, um, and I think it's a system of of toxicity and abuse, and um, and really, <laughs> when you get a medical license or a nursing license, I mean, you're handing your rights over, and it shouldn't be that way. Well, right. why should a professional not have rights? Absolutely. Right? Why should they? We're not valuing them. You know, we're not we're not valuing ourselves. Right. Um, and I think it's a big part of the reason for, you know, burnout and suicide and all the other issues you, you, you hear about. Um, it's it's not he- we're not healthy. 
So how can society be healthy? Absolutely. We, we do a disservice. You know, I, I maintain that if we're not healthy, we can't help our patients be healthy. And it's, it's so important. Our, our health has to come first. And that's the thing that I've learned in recovery is that my health comes above my patient's health because I cannot be a good doctor without being healthy. And, uh, and, and it shows. It shows in my practice. My patients know that my health is important to me and that I'm not going to answer the phone after five o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Um, if, they, if something is that urgent, well, they're going to need to get help in an urgent care or an emergency room. And they, and they respect that. I've, I don't get called. Um, so, so at this point in time, I'm without a medical license and I'm without a board certification. Then in January of 2014, there was a knock at my door and it was two women and they flashed their badges and said, hi, we're from the DEA. And my heart sunk. And I thought, here we go. I, I, I honestly thought they were going to lead me away in handcuffs. But they came in, and again, retrospectively, I should have probably just shut up and gotten an attorney. But, you know, the fear was there so bad that um, they came in. I spilled the beans. I told them everything. I surrendered my DEA, which I was told later I should never have done. Um, And then they left. They started an investigation as well. And so here I was now. I'd lost my DEA as well. You know, kind of the three things that are really important to practice medicine, you know, a license, a board certification and and the DEA. And in July of that year, I got this very lengthy letter uh, from the DEA saying that I was being charged with one count of felony, uh, a felony diversion for each prescription I had written, which was close to 100 so that's 100 charges, but that they would reduce it to one if I would plead guilty. Then I, then I got an attorney. Uh, <laughs> it's generous of them. <laughs> yeah, too little too late. Uh, and so long story short, I met with the attorney and he goes, well, you know what, this actually to be to, to you know, pleading guilty to the lowest level of felony that there is. And one count of a felony, he said, really, you're, you're getting off quite good. He said, it wouldn't be unusual for the DEA to throw the book and say, we're sending you to prison. So in January of 2015, I appeared before the federal judge and pled guilty to obtaining controlled prescriptions by fraud, which is exactly what it was. And uh, nine months later, I was sentenced and again, the judge was empathetic. I, it, the judge had seen enough of this that, and I had no priors. I had, my record was as clean as a whistle. And he said, I'm sentencing you to two years of probation and uh, um, 240 hours of community service and a, and a fine. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, I've gotten off all right and, and uh, I can handle this. Um, and about a month later, uh, my attorney got another letter and said, well, the DEA wants to, to uh, file a civil suit against you as well. And they want X amount of dollars for each prescription you wrote, which ended up being something like $1.4 million that they were asking for in damages. And uh, I pled that down significantly, and we, we agreed on amount, but it was still uh, at or near six figures that I... Uh, I finally decided to pay out, you know, took a huge chunk out of my retirement. And because I was under the age of 59 and a half, had to pay the 10% uh, fee. And actually, I was under the age of 59 and a half by six months, and they would not extend it 
delay the payment. So, uh, yeah, that that uh, you know, at this point, continuously going through my mind is, was this all worth it? You know, it's it's like my recovery has been worse than my addiction has been worse than my treatment. Not to say treatment was bad, but but all the things I'd gone through in treatment that every time I turn around, something bad is happening. And, you know, my job, as I, I didn't mention before, had just kind of quietly let me go. You know, was this we're we're letting you go. We don't want you here. Um, I recall one time specifically I had said, well, why don't you let me practice family medicine? One of your out outlying clinics and i said i'm interested in prescribing medication assisted treatment um suboxone and uh they talked to the doctors that were in this remote clinic and the quote that came back which still shocks me to this day was well we really don't want to attract that kind of patient to our practice (laughs) absolutely blew me away and the the second comment that came out was "Well, well we have an image to protect and and that's when i realized this stigma is huge absolutely just incredibly huge and then i thought i'm not sure i even want to work for a and this is a big healthcare corporation too this isn't a a small company and i thought well maybe it's important to just move on so i moved on Uh, i have to tell you a funny story though is is the the judge was was a minority and he was a guy that was about the size of an offensive lineman um and he looked down at me and he said, okay, you went to a white man's treatment center. And he said, your, uh, uh, your community service is going to be with minority communities. And I said, well, okay, I, I have a lot I can learn from, from this. And so I went to an inner city treatment center that was really for the worst of the worst. I mean, these were people that had been through prison multiple times, multiple treatment centers. And uh, I remember what I volunteered to do there was just talk on medical topics. And I won't forget, I never forget the first time I went to talk to them. Uh, there were probably 50 guys in the room, you know, and maybe other than two of them, they were all minorities. And they had their arms crossed, you know, and these guys got tattoos everywhere. And and I thought, great, here's a white guy up front speaking to people that really don't want me to be there and they don't want to be there too. So I started telling him my story. And when I got to the part where I said felony, it was like these eyes opened and the arms uncrossed and they went, you got a felony? And it was like <laughs> I became a brother instantaneously. And from that moment on, it truly, the, the berries broke down and I ended up with just a wonderful experience there. I mean, people come pulling me aside, doing this and that. And and I really realized that uh, there was at least one reason that I had this felony because it, it helped me to reach out and communicate with people that that I never would have communicated with in the past. So so that was a, a, a positive thing that came out of that. Yeah, And, you know, through hard work, I got my license back. And I and when I got my license back, they uh, uh, the board gave me my board certification back. And this was all in the fall of 2015. And and after my probation was done, I negotiated with the DEA. And for two years, I had a restricted DEA where I couldn't prescribe Schedule Two drugs, opioids. And then after two years in July of 2018, that was lifted as well. And one of the interesting things is that I've actually developed a good relationship with with people from the DEA, one person in particular, and I realize they're just doing their job. I am just another case file. They're, they don't have anything against me personally. They're just, look, I broke the law. 
here's your punishment. And it could have been a lot worse. So at this time, I'd gotten a job in clinical informatics and was actually, it was, it was kind of an interesting job. And I got it actually from another person in recovery. And uh, I liked the job. It was good. Uh, but back in the, the back of my mind, there was always this, I really need to get back and, and combat this epidemic. Um, but, of course, other roadblocks came in. I, I actually went to the University of Wisconsin and talked to their, their program director for addiction medicine. And he was all excited. First of all, I'm this middle-aged guy that's been through all this. And, and uh, he thought my, my years could teach the, the med students and the residents and, and the fellow addiction medicine uh, fellows. Uh, just a different perspective for, from someone um, my age. And so they, they eagerly accepted me into the program. And I was ready to start in January of 2017. And a month, a month before I was to start, I got a letter from CMS, the Center for Medicare Services, that said that they were not going to allow me to enroll in their, uh, to be a provider for, for the government, basically, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera which also is, extends to uh, people that are patients at the, the VA as well. And, uh, and the quote was, because it's not in the best interest of our patients for you to care for them. Amazing. And because I had, you know, a felony conviction. And, uh, and then another, uh, other insurers generally tend to follow suit. If you can't get uh, enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid, then... Uh, yeah, so I looked at this and I kept reading it over and over. And I, and I did an appeal. And I said, not fit to practice medicine. Do you know how many people that are on some government form of insurance struggle with substance use disorder? Who better to care for them, for them than a doctor that is in recovery from substance use disorder that has a strong desire to want to do this? Uh, so many of these laws and rules and barriers are the, the total opposite. Absolutely, <laughs> and you you wonder who's actually putting these things into practice because because right. society's not better for it at no. all. I mean, you are the perfect guy. I mean, you are the exact guy that should be out there taking care of this patient population and teaching and speaking and and writing and I, about this. I, I had letters from the program director at where I went to treatment and colleagues that said this guy is not the same guy he was. I mean. Uh, and, you know, friends, and it didn't matter. It was just rubber stamped, you know, rejected, revoked, whatever. And um, so I realized that, that going a traditional route, and certainly, you know, I had to withdraw from the fellowship because, you know, they have to get paid to pay me. And, uh, you know, so I was devastated. So once again, it's like, okay, what else can happen? Um, but I guess there's a good thing that come out of it. You know, I'm not sure I necessarily believe that quote unquote things happen for a reason, but um, my daughter, uh, at the time was 24 years old and Lindsay was adopted, um, by my first wife and I, and there's a lot of unique struggles that come with that. Um, but one of the good things, or I thought was good at the time was that when she was 22, she wanted to go live with her birth mom. And I thought, great, you know, this is a good thing to do that you can really learn about your past. You can ask her some of those burning questions like, why didn't you keep me? Um, what I didn't realize at the time that uh, was that substance use disorder was rampant in her genetics. And so over those two years she was there, she became, went from a drinker to a heavy drinker, 
went from, you know, different substances. And uh, it was not only her and her birth mom, but also the, the grandma as well. You could just see this thing coming down through generations. Um, and, and, and to show how powerful the disease was, her birth mom was hospitalized twice for pancreatitis, alcohol-induced pancreatitis. And the second time she was told, and she was at a very renowned hospital, she was told, if you drink again, you will die. And she was on a feeding tube for four months, couldn't even so much as swallow water. And uh, within a short time after she had the tube out, she was drinking again. If that doesn't show the power of this disease, you know. Uh, that and my own drinking without regard to consequences, or not drinking using drugs without regard, regard to consequences, you know. Who in their right mind would risk their medical license? Who in their right mind would risk board certification? Who in their right mind would, would risk legal charges and i have to look back on that and i go and go i wasn't in my right mind and and you know lindsay's birth mom wasn't in her right mind either but i'd had i'd had uh, uh texts and phone conversations with her many times and just saying you know honey if you need help um i'm i'm here and then finally in march of 2017 she said dad i need help she said i'm 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 going to die if i keep doing this so she came home to live with my wife and i and uh, she looked miserable when she got home. She was bloated. She was 50 pounds overweight and uh, miserable. Um, one of the things, too, about Lindsay is that, you know, she was part of the LGBT community. And so there were all the unique struggles there as well. Um, her mom, my her adoptive mom, my first wife, was very uh, religious and tried to pray the uh, the lgbtness out of her and uh, and and lindsay never felt accepted by it it was the what i call i don't know if you've read my 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 uh article called i love you but um and lindsay felt well i know mom loves me but and she said that but is the fact that i'm a lesbian anyway i got her into a great treatment program it was actually an lgbt focused uh, treatment center and uh, when she got out of there, she looked the best she'd looked. One of the things that was nice about that is that you didn't have to worry about your sexuality when you were there. You could because everybody there was part of the LGBT community. And uh, so she came out. She looked great. And she said, Dad, we're going to be recovery buddies. And I said, honey, I'm your dad. I'm not your recovery buddy. Your recovery buddies are out there, I said, and there were lots of uh, lots of LGBT, you know, groups that that were very strong. Um, but you know, at the age of twenty-four, she she uh, struggled, and uh, she pulled the wool over my eyes. She was very good at that. She pulled the wool over her counselor's eyes, and I didn't realize till much later that she had relapsed many, many, many times. Um, uh, and, and you want to talk about denial, so. One time I found her in her bedroom and he walked in the room and it reeked of alcohol. And I said, Lindsay, you've been drinking. You know, and I wasn't upset. I said, this is all part of the whole process. And she said, Dad, I haven't been drinking. And I said, okay, honey, um, but what do I smell? She said, I don't know. So I looked on the floor and there was an empty bottle of vodka. And I just looked it up. I said, honey, is this yours? And she goes, damn, busted. And uh, but yet that became her her you know if if it was really this continuous denial 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 dad I'm I'm okay I'm okay I'm okay and uh, you know retrospectively looking back I, I didn't realize how unokay she was um, 
And to make a long story short, her demons got too great. And then in uh, August 15th of 2017, she took her life um, by hanging. Uh, it was a early on a Monday morning when she had left the house. Uh, and we knew she was missing. She had left a, a note. And so we called the police locally. And probably within an hour, there were two detectives and a detectives and a policeman at the door and they came in and they said I'm sorry to say that your daughter's dead she hung herself and to say there is nothing worse than losing a child would just completely it's I mean it's true but it doesn't even begin to describe the grief I mean truly at that point in time I didn't care about my own recovery I didn't care about anything. I had lost my daughter. I looked at on it on it as a personal failure. She struggled with mental illness. She struggled with substance use disorder. Why was I at that time, you know, five, six years into recovery and doing well, and she couldn't? And th those are questions I ask myself to this day. Um, just just those whys, and I realized there <clears throat> there won't be any answer to the whys. You know, and, and you get the nice, you know, well-intended responses. Well, it was God's will. I'm saying, oh, okay. So I'm not sure what God you believe in, but that God wants my wanted my daughter to put a rope around her neck. No, I don't think that's it. Well, she's in a better place. I said, well, the best place for my daughter to be is by my side. She she's not there, you know. And and it, you know, well, all things happen for a reason. And I thought. I, you know, I had a real hard time with with things happening for a reason. I said, I don't know what the reason is that anybody would put a rope around their neck and hang themselves from a tree. So, so those were some of the well-intentioned things that that people mentioned. Um, how how did it, you how did you get through? How did you get through that? What, what, I I had a strong group of recovery friends, um, truly, and this was one of the the neatest things and this is where you know in contrast to the colleagues that i practiced with these people loved me cared for me and lifted you up and i'll never forget they said luther you can't do your recovery right now let us do it for you you grieve and that was incredible to have that type of love and support and these were health professionals in the recovery community that said let us help you um, and they got me through it. Yeah. There's <laughs> nothing more powerful than that. Having people around you to lift, lift you up when you can't lift yourself up. And I'd never had that happen before. Um, you know, so, so time doesn't ever heal the wound. The wound, wound becomes scars and, and life never returns to normal. It returns to a new normal and, and normal becomes, living with the fact that I lost my daughter. Um, but, but you know, and again, at this time, I was still in clinical informatics, but I, I really felt this was kind of the icing on the cake that I have to get back into medical practice. And I, I had thought about this actually long before Lindsay died, and I knew that if I did it, it was going to be on my terms, taking care of patients how I wanted to take care of them. And then also the fact that, that CMS had denied enrolling me, I thought, well, I don't have to worry about insurance. So I'm going to do this back in the old. <laughs> That's a blessing. <laughs> like the old dark, Dr. Welby days, Marcus Welby, that, that ages me, I know. But um, uh, I thought I'm just going to do a fee-for-service practice. 
And so I started in January. And the, the neatest thing about it is that I get to spend time with people. Um, I get to listen to them. What, what patients want, I have learned, is they want to talk. They want to have somebody who listens to them. And when I have a patient come, come into the clinic, the first thing I'll do is I give them a, a 60 second spiel about me. And I've never had that um, be a negative. The, the relief in someone's eyes, they say, oh, so you've struggled with this, you've struggled with that. And I'll say, yeah, you know what? I know what it's like to withdraw. I know what it's like to crave. Um, it, it opens doors and the floodgates truly do open. And that's really the probably the practice that I've wanted all these years, and I have now. Is I, you know, a busy day for me, and I don't see a lot of a lot of patients right now. But a busy day for me would be seeing maybe six to eight patients um, and spending time with them. Um, but the ones I've seen, it's just it's incredible how the desire they have to want to get well. Um, is incredible and then when they realize i have no strict definition of what is well what is recovery what is it to you not what my definition of it and, and what works for me is really when the the uh, uh floodgates open as well um you know when i got a treatment i was a complete abstinence this is it this is the only way and you know i've learned and i've learned mostly from from people i've talked to that I've become a real harm reduction advocate, and uh, I'm not, you know, I don't tell someone, well, you're smoking marijuana, you need to quit doing that, you need to quit. I, you know, I say I would rather have you on marijuana and Suboxone than marijuana and heroin. That's progress, and let's just let's try to make let, let's do something today to make it a little better than yesterday. And and it doesn't necessarily have to use to do with drug use. It has to do with you know, what can you do? One little thing can you do today to make it better than yesterday? You know. Don't sleep in until 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, that, that, you know, that in a nutshell is, is the story, I guess, more than a nutshell. But um, it's been an interesting journey. It really has. And, and there, there is a lot of joy. I, um, I didn't mention I, I uh, met my wife um, uh, four years ago, and she uh, was in marriages where there was uh, a lot of uh, – substance use disorder that she finally had to separate from and learn to get healthy. And so she's in recovery from codependency. And so she's my biggest supporter in this whole thing. I have a stepson that uh, is in recovery that I was able to help that, that Suboxone truly saved his life. And he's, he's a very contributing member of society now. So there are a lot of good things that have happened, but I think sometimes we may come into recovery with this illusion that, okay, it's all fine now. Everything's, you know, the, this pink cloud is going to last forever and it doesn't. And recovery is hard. And in my case, I think it was in some respects harder than the addiction and certainly the treatment I went into, mm-hmm. but it's doable. Yeah. I think a lot of us think, well, I'm going to clean myself up, so to speak, and go back to my life the way it right. was. Right. And right. that's just not the way it works. But if you right. hear that up front, you're probably going to run. Yeah. <laughs> and retrospectively, I it was it was a good thing that I didn't go back to the job because so many of the things that contributed to my addiction were on the job. Um, and as I look back, you know, a high percentage of emergency physicians and anesthesiologists, as you know, um, end up with substance use disorder. You know, but 
access to drugs, whatever it is. But um, yeah. How, how do you feel about your life today? Like, I mean, you've certainly been through a lot and experienced quite a bit of trauma and had quite a journey. I think, you know, people say, well, what word would you use today? And I think the first word that always comes to my mind is resilience. I don't know that there's anything in my life that could happen that I wouldn't be able to deal with. And I've also really, you know, and so much of this is cliche-ish, but I, I wake up every day and I go, what can I do today to make the world a little bit better? You know, just just a small little thing. And sometimes it's some, it's something like engaging a person in a checkout line at a grocery store in conversation. And I think it really has come down to just try to leave this world when it's my time in a better place, you know, and, and be remembered as someone who tried to make people's lives better. And, and really what, what's come out also is just the compassion and empathy I have for people, you know, and especially people struggling with this horrendous disease and people struggling with, with whatever their definitions of, re, of recovery is too. Um, mm-hmm. We're in a battle. Yes. Yes, we are. Absolutely. Um, this is fantastic. I mean, we could talk for hours and go down a lot of different directions. Um, Bill, do you have any other questions for Luther? No, I mean, just want to say thank you. I mean, I mean, yeah, just like Sean, I could keep you on here for, for hours, picking your brain with different things, but no, it was, it was an amazing story. We can we can do a pick your brain uh, uh, conversation again. Yeah, this doesn't have to be the only time we do the podcast. Certainly. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I have a lot of uh, yeah, I have lots of questions. We could go down. We could go down the <laughs> road for every single thing that's that's happened. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly would be glad to do that in the future. Yeah. Um, before we go, how can people reach you? Um, Doctor Luther M D. Uh, it's all D-R-L-U-T-H-E-R-M-D.com. They go on the website. Uh, they can reach me. And it, and it does talk about re- requesting a consult. Obviously, if someone wants to see me, that's fine. But also, there's a phone number on there um, that they can call. And I'd be glad to talk to anybody at any time. And one of my passions is is uh, is helping health professionals that are struggling. Um, one of the things I do also is provide off-the-grid care, as I call it. Um, that's one of the nice things about being fee for service. I'm not beholden to insurance companies. I won't disclose anything. Um, anything, if, if somebody comes in and they're having issues, we're going to talk about them. You know, we'll talk about, well, what are the solutions to these issues? Um, so that, yeah, they can reach me. And again, I'm glad to talk to anyone and not just in, in, in my home state, but, uh, anywhere in the country. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again, Luther. You bet. We'll we'll catch up soon. I'm and sure. and I'm glad we could all finally get together. It's been uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a little a, a little monumental slow, slow start. Task. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Hey, but it was well worth it. This was yeah. fantastic, and thank you so much for sharing your story. It's so welcome. powerful. Everyone, have a good day. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us. People can and do recover.